1987, a major advertising firm was tapped to create a new uh, series of television ads for a major manufacturer. And that advertising firm named uh, Wyden and Kennedy developed several different spots that were going to roll out in early 1988. But each one of those spots uh, was developed by a different creative team. And as they begin to look through that, one of the uh, heads of the advertising agency felt like that they were all good, but something was missing. They needed something that would tie each of those ads together in a way that was memorable. Now, the ads were about sporting goods. And so you had ads that had to do with uh, senior adults running. You had ads that had to do with uh, tennis players. You had ads that had to do with, with basketball players. So you had this wide plethora of TV spots that had been developed by various creative teams that they felt like needed some type of cohesive unity that was going to be the, the foundation that was going to be the base of everything. And there was an argument about it. Not everyone uh, in the agency and not everyone among the manufacturer felt good about it. But one of the, the leaders of the ad agency came forward with an idea and decided that at the end of every one of those ads, they would add a simple black screen with three white words, just do it. That ad campaign became uh, synonymous clearly over the next few years with a company named Nike. And in fact, just saying those words, the majority of people in here knew then exactly which company I was talking about. An ad campaign that was developed in 1987, before some of y'all were born. Now think about that. Uh, now, Kirby and I can remember 1987 really well. Uh, that, uh, that was the year I got married. So uh, I remember that year. But you can imagine uh, what, what an incredible uh, statement that that has made. Now, that, that phrase has uh, taken some difficult turns over the years. Uh, I, I think that uh, uh, there's been some controversy. But usually that phrase is, is, a, is a phrase that's just encouraging. It, it makes me, uh, when I see, I went back and watched some of the ads last night. One of the ads was an was a 80-year-old man who said, I get up and I run 17 miles every day. And he's, and he's jogging across the, he was in New York, he's jogging across the Brooklyn Bridge as he, as he says, I run 17 miles every day. And he says, sometimes people ask me, what do I do when it's so cold that my teeth chatter? He said, I take them out and I leave them at home. <laughs> and then the screen went black and it said, just do it. And I thought, I'm not even 80 years old. I can just do it, right? And that became a foundational uh, 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 slogan, excuse me, for Nike in their advertising. And it has stuck for all of these years. You know, here we are, gosh, add it up, 35, almost 35 years later. And, and there's still meaning in those words. We're going to be looking today at one of my favorite all-time verses of Scripture. And, and y'all know I have several. But if there's, if there's one that has stuck in my heart uh, there's probably a, a, about five, I would say, that have really, really stuck in my heart over the years. But one that's probably made the biggest impact that has stuck in me. One phrase that has stuck in me that has made the difference 
in my Christian life, in my walk, in my ministry is this, not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. There's a couple passages of Scripture that, that form the foundation for that thought, but none do it better than, than Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The reason that that is so important, and it seems like for the last three weeks or so, as we've been studying Galatians from Galatians chapter one, and we're going to still get a little tad of it next week when we get into Galatians chapter three, but especially the first two chapters of Galatians, it's, it, we're just dealing with the same truth over and over and over. And Paul is, is fleshing this out. He's telling the story of some things that have happened. He's laying a foundation and then he drives it home, like driving a spike in the ground in chapter two, verse 20, to say, there is no other hope of, of a Christian life, of a Christ life. There's nothing else that works except for you dying and Christ living in you. That's it. That's the crux of the gospel. Nothing else matters. Nothing else works. Everything else you guys are trying is going to fail. And, and so he continues to walk through that and he nails that down here today. I want to, we're going to walk through verse 11 down through verse 21. We'll go ahead and let me read the text. And the first part of this is going to be Paul bringing a conclusion to the narrative that he began back in chapter 1, verse 11, kind of telling the story that has created all of this controversy that's got him so stirred up over this one little thing. Now, read with me Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, some, this came up in Stephanie, we asked the question, why does Paul sometimes calling Peter, sometimes calling Cephas, sometimes calling Simon. I don't know. Nobody has a good answer to that. And this is the same guy. Peter was named Cephas, who was also named Simon, okay? When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Think about this. Paul, the guy who was killing Christians, while Peter was the first pastor of the church at Jerusalem, they get into it at Antioch. Paul has to get in Peter's face because there's something that's got caught in his craw that he's so upset about he can't get past it. And so Paul says here, when he came to Antioch, now we'll, we'll walk through the, the story here in just a moment. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However... When they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet, because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because of the works of the law, no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. 
If I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law. So that I might live for God, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if, the, if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Father, help us get this truth. Let this become so embedded in our hearts, in our soul, in our psyche that we, we never lose sight of it. And that anytime we hear teaching or preaching, or we even begin to think in our own hearts that somehow I can do it. I can do it. That we, we understand that that's a lie from the enemy. I can't. Christ can. My only hope is him in me. You'll see that in summary. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5. There's, Paul says, there, there, I, I can't, there's nothing that I am sufficient to accomplish in my own strength that's worth anything. My sufficiency comes from Christ. I can't, he can, with him and me, I can. That's what matters. I want to walk through this because this narrative gets a little confusing. We talked about it a little bit last week. If you're in your growth groups, uh, you are studying uh, Paul's story, and so you're seeing some of this narrative flesh itself out. Uh, last week, we talked about how apparently what most scholars believe, and, and I tend to believe, is that there was a meeting at some point when Paul and Barnabas took the, a collection that had been taken up by the, the church at Antioch to help deal with the, the famine that was going on in Jerusalem. Now, you would have read about that in Acts 11 today. They took that collection up to uh, Jerusalem to help relieve the famine. And while they were there, Paul and Barnabas had a meeting with three key leaders of the church because they, there was already this undercurrent, kind of this underbelly of... Uh, conflict between how Gentiles come to faith in Christ and whether Gentiles have to uh, follow Jewish rules of, of, uh, uh, of, of cleansing and Jewish rules of, of uh, food and, and Jewish rules of circumcision. And so there was already an undercurrent and a discussion about that. And Paul and Barnabas addressed that issue when they were at Jerusalem with the leaders. And we, we talked about that last week in uh, Galatians chapter 1 down through verse 10. And now Paul's back at Antioch where he and Barnabas are pastoring, where they're serving as lead pastors. And at some point you have this exchange where some of the leaders now have, have come from Jerusalem down to Antioch. And Peter apparently had made that trip periodically. So Peter at this point comes down to Antioch and he comes, while he's at Antioch, he's getting along well with everybody. And they would have, they'd come together and have fellowships, like we're going to do next week. We're going to have our, our chili cook-off in here and have a fellowship. And so I've already got my trophy. Uh, it's here. I hadn't put my name on it. It won't be official until I win next weekend. But I'm throwing down. Actually, I didn't. I got beat last year or two years ago. Last year, we had to skip it. But uh, I'm throwing down the gauntlet this year. So come and, and give it a try. Uh, but we'll have a fellowship in here. And what would happen is the, the hardcore circumcised Judaizers, 
They felt like it was a sin to sit at the table with Gentiles. Well, that created a problem in the church because now they're saying, well, but wait a minute. If I truly believe that I'm saved by faith and they're saved by faith, even though I'm not going to eat pork, they might eat pork as long as I can still sit with them. Now, some of the Jews, because of their, their tradition and their history, they still weren't going to, they, they were still going to go by the, the, the laws of, of cleansing and, and they were going to go by their, the dietary rules just because that was tradition. That's who they were. They weren't ready to give that up. And so they'd come to, they had to make a decision here. Okay, I still don't, I'm not going to change all my dietary rules, but is it okay for me to sit at the table with other believers who are eating something I wouldn't eat? Is it okay for me to sit at the table with Gentile believers? And there was some discussion about that. And there, was, there was problems going on about that. And so it was, it was called a, a, a kind of a, Table fellowship controversy is what it boiled down to. We can go to the fellowship with them. We can go to church with them, but we can't sit at the same table. Well, they'd gotten over it. Paul and Barnabas had, had dealt with that, and, and, and the Jews were getting along with the Gentiles, and, and they'd all gotten saved by Christ. They all knew that he was their only hope. So they were fellowshipping just fine together. Peter comes down from Antioch, and he's hanging out. And he's sitting down eating with the Gentiles until some of the hardcore ones came down from Jerusalem. And so when, when some of those legalistic Jewish believers came down, Paul calls them here in verse 12 from the circumcision party. Then Peter quit eating with the Gentiles. He changed tables. And the problem was it was obvious. It was way too obvious. And, and so Paul's said what happened, it was so obvious that not only did Peter do it, but he began to see a split in his church at Antioch. All of the Jews quit sitting, quit eating with the Gentiles. Uh, you know, they, they, they wanted to go back and be like the good Jews, the, the, the religious Jews, those who obeyed all of the rules and regulations. Why? Because we as humans somehow are drawn to this idea that we're just a little bit better if we can do something like that. And we're a little bit better than those Gentile believers. Even to the extent that Paul's mentor, Barnabas, changed tables. Paul, Barnabas, had been the leader on the, it would be the leader on the first missionary journey. It was going to go out. But Barnabas, then when Paul writes this, of course, he's writing back to the Galatian churches he already started. Hey, you remember Barnabas, who I brought with me? This is a problem I had with him. Even Barnabas changed tables. And, and Paul had had enough. Now, this is the first letter Paul ever wrote. It's early in Paul's ministry. We believe he wrote this in 48 AD. I think that Paul throughout his life, softened a little bit. But what he did at this point was for good reason, whether he did it exactly right or not. Paul called Peter out. But Paul didn't do what Jesus said to do in Matthew 18. He didn't take Peter aside in a side room and say, Peter, you're sinning by sitting at the wrong table. You need to stop it. You need to fix this. Paul says, I publicly got in his face. I... I 
opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What is it that, that and then he, he says, Paul says, you, you've become a hypocrite and you've even brought Barnabas along that he's acting like a hypocrite. Stop it. What is it that was so crucial, that was so important that they get right that Paul would call out key leaders, his mentor, in such a fashion. It was that the, the heart of the gospel itself, it was the very root of the gospel. It's essentially Paul saying, if you don't get this right, nothing else matters. If you don't understand this very basic truth, nothing matters. And so Paul publicly calls him out on that. Well, what is this very basic truth that we have to get or everything else is a loss? It's the fact that our only hope for salvation, our only hope for life is Christ and nothing else. If you don't get that, nothing else matters. You can try to fake Christianity. You can try to fake good deeds. You can fake church attendance. You can fake, you can tithe. You can fake good deeds of Christianity. But if you miss this, the core of the gospel is Christ and Christ alone. You've missed it. In fact, you'll spend eternity separated from God in hell if you miss that. And why was Paul, Paul's not, Paul, when he says Peter stand, stands condemned, I don't believe that Paul believed that Peter was condemned to hell, okay? I don't think that, that Peter missed it. But what Paul was concerned about was that Peter somehow was allowing law, the old law, to creep back in. And as soon as you allow law, legalism, to creep back in, what will happen is two things. Those who are, who are truly born again in Christ will start depending on themselves to live out the Christian life. Okay, I trusted him for my salvation, but now I've got to try harder. How many of us have been stuck in that merry-go-round over and over and over? And no matter how hard we try, we find out we can't. The second thing that will happen is people on the outside see Christians start leading a religious life life, and they think it's all about religion. They think it's about rules and regulation. And so lost people who need to understand, who need to know that Christ is their only hope, will die and go to hell because they try to mimic Christians in obeying the law, obeying the rules. So you have to get this right. So then Paul has this, he finishes the narrative of the story there in verse 15. And then verse 15, he basically says, so this is what we've learned from it, okay? We were Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, which the Jews thought all the Gentiles were sinners. We're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, but we figured out that we couldn't justify ourselves. We never thought we were sinners. We always thought we were better than them, but we figured out that we still couldn't justify ourselves, no matter how hard we tried. Our only hope was to trust in Christ's righteousness. And so in verse six, 17, it goes on to say, but if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, 
Is Christ then a promoter of sin? So you can get lost in Paul's logic here. Sometimes Paul's a lot smarter than me. And so sometimes it takes me a while to work through his statements. But essentially what Paul's saying here is, if now I've said, okay, I need Jesus, but he's not enough. So I need Jesus plus the law. I need Jesus plus circumcision. I need Jesus plus church attendance. I need Jesus plus tithe. I need Jesus plus something else. But the law we know leads us to sin. Then is Jesus promoting sin? Heck no, you've lost your mind, Paul says. Jesus could never promote sin. So something's got to be wrong in our thinking. Am, am I a lawbreaker then if I rebuild what I've torn down? He says in verse 18. So if, if, if Jesus has come along and he said, look, the law has shown you your sin, but your only hope of eternal life is putting your faith and trust in me. And then I come along and go, okay, I put my faith and trust in you. Now I've got to obey all these laws. And I rebuild some of the law for my Baptist churches have their laws. And, you know, Methodist churches sometimes have different laws. And Catholic churches have their different rules. And sometimes we come up with different rules. But we rebuild some of the rules. And we say, okay, if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to, have, you've got to follow these rules just like this. And we rebuild some of those rules. Aren't we just rebuilding law? Aren't we then saying that Jesus was necessary? His death on the cross was necessary, but it's not enough? Yeah. So Paul comes down to this and he says, you know what? I'm done with it. I'm done with that kind of thinking. I'm done with the law. Peter, if you're going to go that direction, I'm done with you. Barnabas, if you're going that way, I'm done with you. You other, you other Judaizers, I'm done with that. For the, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. The law was worthless for me. My only hope was Christ. I've settled that, and that's it. That's the end of the introduction. Now we'll start the sermon. This won't take long. Let me give you four things. Stop trusting yourself, Paul says. You can't do it. You can't be good enough to measure up to Christ. You can't. So stop, stop trusting your own strength. At some point, you're going to have to surrender completely, fully over to Christ. Quit trusting your own ability. Start trusting Him. The, the, the crucified life the victorious life in Christ, the abundant life in Christ, whatever you want to call it, always begins with coming to the end of self. You have to come to the end of yourself. We, we're like, you know, we're like a, a, a marlin out in the ocean. Christ hooks us and he starts reeling us into his boat. And we're like, man, I, I can't, I, I can't fight anymore. I'm going to give in. I'm going to go back to, I'm going to go to Christ. And then we get close to the boat and we go, you know, I, I feel a little bit of energy and here we go again. And we take off again and we try and we try and we try and then we, oh, I can't make it. I can't make it. So we surrender again. We let him start bringing us back in and we just keep trying it in our own strength. At some point we need to give up and get in his boat. That's our only hope. Stop worrying about how other Christians are doing it. 
That's what happened to Peter. He was fine when he came down to Antioch. He's hanging, hanging out with the Gentile believers. He's eating with them. He's fellowshipping with them. They have a great Christian fellowship. And then some of these guys who are holy, they got it all figured out. They come to Antioch and Peter's like, no, man, I want to be like them. Quit trying to be like them. Start trying to be like Jesus. Stop trusting yourself. Stop comparing your good deeds to others' good deeds. If you're going to you, try to measure up to somebody, try to measure up to Jesus. And you'll figure out real quick that you can't do that on your own. So your only hope is surrender. Trust Christ alone. Trust him. He's big enough to save you. He's big enough to carry you through this life. Trust his death. Trust his resurrection. And that's the outline for the rest of the sermon. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. I have been crucified with Christ. I died with Christ. I died to self. I died to religion. I died to sin. You can flesh out this theology in Romans chapter 5 and 6. You can flesh it out in Jesus' teaching in John chapter 8. You've been set free when you put your hope and faith in Christ and Christ alone. He breaks the chains of bondage. You're no longer a slave to sin. You've died to sin. You've died to the law. You've died to self. One of the problems with some of you people, and, and I don't really fit into this category, some of you people have USDA grade A flesh. You're just good people. My wife's one of these. She's just a good, good person. She's a good enough person that she could fake it. She really is. She's a good enough person that she could fake being a good Christian. She's a good, I was never a good person. You ask my older brothers, you ask my parents, if Jesus hadn't have done something in me, I'd have been a wreck. But some people just have choice flesh. They can go through life and they can do pretty good and they can put up a good front and they never fully, completely surrender over to Christ because they're pretty good. I remember a, a visit that I made years ago when I was pastoring in May. The husband had years before he put his faith in Christ and he'd stumbled in his life, but he'd come back to Christ and he was, he was getting plugged in to the church and getting real active, but he'd remarried in those years. And, and the woman that he married was a really, really good lady, a good mother, uh, took care of her home well. Uh, she was very intelligent and she would come to church, but he knew his wife was lost. He knew that she had never put her trust in Christ to be her savior. And so he, we had prayed together and he asked me to come visit their home and, and just talk to her. I and mean, he wanted me to just right up front, you know, get in her face about her salvation. And that's really not my style. I don't mind being straightforward with the gospel, but, but I don't want to be in your face type. And so I went to their home and I was visiting with them and, and began to share the gospel with her. And she said, 
y'all just think I need to be saved, don't you? She looked at me and her husband. Y'all think I need to be saved, don't you? And I said, well, you're, I shared the gospel. We all need to be saved. We all, without Christ, have sinned and, and, and have earned an eternity separated from God, all of us. And her words were this, I'm a good person. I don't see anything I need to be saved from. She was. She's a very good person. Dr. McGorman in his, his uh, Romans class made the comment, he said, tears of repentance will more quickly roll down the eyes of a prostitute than out of the eyes of a religious man. Every one of us need Jesus the same. But those who have good flesh sometimes have the hardest time dying to self. Paul says, in a lot of ways, he had good flesh. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was zealous for his faith. Paul, being a Pharisee, probably had the majority of the Old Testament memorized. Paul had it going for him until God broke him. And ultimately, oftentimes, that's what has to happen to us before we'll ever surrender. God has to do something to break us. Paul says, I died. We can look at that and go, wait a minute, Paul, you're still walking around. What do you mean you died? I was crucified. I gave it up. I quit trying on my own. I gave up the law. I gave up my religion. I gave up my sin. I died. I died to my old self. Why? Because you cannot be reborn. You cannot be born anew or born again unless you first die to self. So Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live only by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says, I died, I was crucified. Just like Jesus died on the cross, his flesh was put to death. But just like Jesus rose and he's alive, so also am I alive. But I'm not alive in my flesh. I'm not alive in my sin. I'm not alive in my religion. I'm not alive in my own strength. I'm alive in Christ. Christ living his life out through me is a completely different person than me trying to do it on my own. So I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. And so he is alive in Christ. He is alive by faith. The only, the only way that you can accept this truth is by faith. There comes a point where you have to say, man, there's in some ways 
Paul, what you're saying doesn't make sense. You're dead. You're alive. What are you talking about? How were you crucified? You were never crucified. Paul says, spiritually, when I gave myself over to Christ, I was crucified with Christ and I've been made alive in him because he put a new heart in me. He transformed me. He changed me. And the only way that happens is by faith in Christ and Christ alone. There is no other God throughout all of history, no other man throughout all of history who stepped out of heaven born of a virgin, died on a cross for your sins and my sin and rose up out of the grave other than Christ. And so your only hope, my only hope is Christ and Christ alone. You can't add anything to it and you can't subtract anything from it. He died and he rose. So I must die with him and I'll be made alive in him by faith. How am I going to live this Christian life? How am I going to walk every single day? How am I going to, how am I going to live as though Christ is in me? By faith. There's going to be days where I don't feel it. But am I going to trust him anyway? By faith, I'm going to walk with him. I'm going to live in hope. I'm not going to live with my head down. With my tail between my legs, even when I fail, I'm going to live in hope. Because one of these days, because Christ died and he rose again and I died with him and I'm alive in him, my future just gets brighter from here. One of these days, he's going to return. He's either going to return for me first or he's going to return for all of us. Regardless, he's coming back and I'm going to be with him. I'm going to get to see my, my dad again. I'm going to get to see my brother again. I'm going to get to see my daughter again. I live in hope every single day because Christ died and Christ rose. I've been crucified with Christ. Christ lives in me. I live in hope. I live in faith. I live in his grace every single day. He pours out his grace on me every single day. Do I blow it? Yep. Cole does too, doesn't he? But thanks be to God through his grace that he extends toward us that is unending. His mercy that, that he offers us every single day. I live in his grace. I don't live under the law. I don't live under the rules anymore. I live under the law of grace. Even when I fail, he pours out grace on me because I'm his kid. What a beautiful, wonderful life that I get to live because Jesus died and rose again and he's brought me with him. He took my sin to the cross. I was crucified with Christ. When I surrendered my life over to him, I died and I'm alive in him and he's brought me with him. And wherever he goes from here on out, I'm with him. I'm with him and he's with me. So I'm alive because of the resurrection. I live in Christ. I live by faith. I live in hope. I live by grace. And I live in his love. I'm not condemned anymore. I'm, I'm not living under a threat of wrath ever again. I'll never be under a threat of condemnation ever again. I live under his umbrella of love. True love. I have, a, I have an incredible example of that in my own life because my wife is one who extends true love. 
In my failure, she loves me. In my victories, she loves me. When, I'm, when I act like a juvenile, she loves me. That's the way marriage should be. Because marriage should be a reflection of God's love for us. I get to see God's love every day at home because I have an incredible wife who loves me. I have a God who loves me even more and even better. If we learn to walk in his love, we're set free from the condemnation that the enemy throws at us every single day. You know what that makes me want to do? Makes me want to love her back. It's hard. I, I just can't do as good a job loving her as she does loving me. I'll confess that. I try. Sometimes I, I try with big things. I try with little things because she's, she's good at it. And I'll never be able to love Christ back as well as he loves me. But I can try. I, I just want to love him. I want to walk with him. I want to be with him. I want to read his word because it's in his word that I get to learn this kind of stuff. It's his word that I get to learn about his grace. I feel like for the last four weeks, all I've done is preach the gospel. Man, I love preaching the gospel because it's a picture of his love. One of these days he'll take me back to, well, we're going to Amos in the summer, so it'll be a whole different world, okay? We get to live in his love, and we get to live in his abundance. Christ has it all. He's accomplished it all. He's won it all. He did it. <laughs> He's fulfilled every need that I have. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I love the, the CSB's translation of that. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all I need. What a great picture. Because in Christ, when he is my shepherd, I'm walking with him, in him. I have everything I need. Doesn't mean the road, the, the, this world's going to be rosy. It never has, never will. But I have all I need. And he promises me that. And I always will. He will be there. Now think about those, those Christians not long after Paul wrote this, and maybe some of the people there in Galatia that he wrote this to, some of those people that actually went to the torture stake and were burned for their faith, who even in their confession, you read Fox's Book of Mars, even their confession, Christ was with them. They had all they needed, even as they were being burned, because they had Christ. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough when you're on the mountaintops. Jesus is enough when you're in the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus was enough the day Katie was born. Jesus was enough the day Katie died. Jesus is enough. Let our anthem be every day. Not I, but Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. If you have never 
Put your faith in Jesus under his terms. Where you came and said, absolutely, I can't. I can't. I'm done. I've tried. I fought the fight. I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to be a religious. I'm a failure. I'm done. If you've never come to him in those terms, whether you're feeling it today or not, whether you're feeling you're done today or not, maybe you're not at your low, but I'll give you a warning. God will take you there. If If you haven't put your faith in Christ alone yet, I plead with you to come to that place where you say, Jesus, you're all I need. You're all I want. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, I'm going to plead with you to come talk to me about it today. I'll be up front. Nathan will be up front. If we have three people come, we'll get Cole to come stand up front with us. If somebody else needs to find out how to come to faith in Christ and Christ alone. But Christian, those of you who are already saved, can you say today for me to live is Christ? Can you truly say, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? If that's not where you are in your walk, you're settling for something less than Christ's very best. You're settling for a watered-down gospel of grace. You're settling for a religious, cheap imitation of what God truly desires for his relationship with you. I don't have to prove my love to Susan and she doesn't have to prove her love to me. I love her because I want to. And she loves me back. You don't have to prove your love for God. But if you'll walk in his love and his grace and you experience his love, you'll want to love him back. And if you're walking in his law and you're walking in religion, You found a cheap imitation of Christianity. Don't settle for that. Paul didn't want the church to settle for it. He didn't want his mentor Barnabas to settle for it. He didn't want Peter to settle for it. He didn't want that garbage brought into the church he was pastoring at Antioch. Because once that's brought in, once the law is brought in, it begins to take over. Paul wanted them to walk by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's the best. That's what God offers every single one of us if we'll accept it. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.